This season of the Art Curious Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Anchorlight. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com to learn all about their artist residency programs, exhibitions, and more. Have you ever seen a sculpture so lifelike that you've got to stand there staring for a whole minute trying to determine if you're seeing a real person or a real animal? I sure have. Just check out the uncanny life-size works of Dwayne Hansen and you will see what I mean. Or have you ever seen a painting so naturalistic that you almost want to reach out and touch it to make sure it's actually oil on canvas and not something else like a bowl of fruit? Absolutely, this happens. Though just as a PSA, please don't touch the art ever because it's far more fragile than you think it is, even in terms of its sensitivity to the oils on your fingertips. Sometimes art is meant to appear so lifelike that it's really disturbing. There's been a long precedent for this in art that shows this darker side of life in the most realistic ways possible, something that we touched on a bit during our shock art series with works like Thomas Aikens' painting, The Gross Clinic. Centuries before Aikens created his gory masterpiece, lived another painter in Europe whose violent, dark paintings of dying martyrs shown in a very lifelike manner totally gripped Spain and Italy. And though sometimes compared to Caravaggio, this painter is equally deserving of our attention in art history today. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season seven, we're uncovering the coolest artists you don't know. And today we're discussing that other Baroque bad boy, Giuseppe de Ribera. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Born near Valencia, Spain in February 1591, Giuseppe de Ribera, also known as José de Ribera, was the second son of a famed local shoemaker. And that's almost all that we know about his early life. Because, you know, it's not always super easy to keep nice, clean historical records in the 16th century, etc., etc. It is thought that perhaps he was trained originally as an artist as a child, possibly being apprenticed to the artist Francisco Ribalta. But we art historians don't know this for sure since, of course, no documentation exists, and it appears that this connection to Ribalta was first made by a biographer beginning in the 18th century, someone at a remove of at least a century from the artist himself, so we take it with a grain of salt. What we do know, however, is that at the age of 20, Ribera burst onto the scene in Italy in about 1611 or 1612, traveling from Spain through Parma and ending up in Rome by the end of 1612. As we learned in our last episode on Angelica Kaufman, Rome, at the time of Angelica's life, was the center of the art world and of art education. And that was also true during the 17th century at the time that Ribera was alive and kicking. Like his near-contemporary Caravaggio, Giuseppe de Ribera established himself quickly as a painter to know in Rome. But he frequently bristled at the opportunities that came his way from wealthy patrons. 
His inspiration, it seemed, came from the everyday life around him, all of its struggles and necessities, its less-than-picture-perfect qualities. And while this interest did not endear him to the Roman rich who would otherwise like to keep him employed, it is what makes him so fascinating to us today, because of his rejection of the ideal and his inclusion of the <clears throat> uncomfortable in imagery, Ribera became one of the superstars of the Baroque movement. Those first few years in Rome were rather integral to Giuseppe de Ribera's training and career, but he didn't want to blend into the background there either. One of the ways he stood out was that he embraced his Spanish heritage, deeply proud of his roots, even if he was sometimes mixed on his feelings of having been raised in Spain. He would often sign his work as Giuseppe the Spaniard and adopting the nickname Lo Spanioletto, which means the little Spaniard. In this way, it was a good bit of marketing, a way to differentiate himself from the likes of Caravaggio, especially since much of his work owed a great deal to the styles innovated by Caravaggio, things like deep chiaroscuro and the dramatic nature of his compositions. But eventually, the concept of getting a little bit closer to home did come to play in Ribera's life. He made the decision to move down to Naples in 1616, a decision that may have been made for two reasons. First, Naples was under Spanish rule during this period, so he was able to settle there permanently and with all the associated benefits of a Spanish citizen living abroad. It worked for him, apparently, because this is where he would spend the remainder of his life and where his career would reach its greatest heights. Second, we know that Ribera married a woman named Catalina Azolina, a lady that the artist seems to have arranged to meet and marry even before he moved to Naples proper. And it wasn't necessarily a love match, or at least not just a love match. Catalina was the daughter of a very successful Neapolitan artist and art dealer, someone by the name of Giovanni Bernardino Azolino. Our pal Giuseppe wasn't a dummy he may have been doing his homework on who to get close to in order to catapult himself into the very exclusive Neapolitan art market. Like his Italian counterpart, Caravaggio, Ribera took a naturalistic approach to his subject matter, but so intensely focused on the practically grotesque side of things that it's almost like he wanted to one-up Caravaggio in his own imagery. He portrayed his subjects in some of the most unflattering, even ghastly ways, showcasing saggy skin, concave chests, contorted body angles, and even deformed individuals. And no one was exempt, not even holy men or innocent women. Especially not holy men or innocent women. Take, for example, his 1638 canvas, The Martyrdom of St. Philip the Apostle. It is a disturbing image that shows the preparation leading to Philip's death via crucifixion. Philip, nude but for a cloth draped over his nether regions, is strung up by his hands and is in the process of being hoisted up onto his wooden cross by several men around him. But our eyes just home right in on Philip. Ribera's skill here lies in the utter physicality of his depiction of a saint, rendered so naturalistically as to be practically beautiful. He shows Philip with a gray, muted skin tone that hints at the struggle, malnutrition, and sickness that he most definitely experienced, and Philip's own gaunt face and bulging ribs just lure us into his suffering. Like with Caravaggio's paintings, Ribera here makes Philip feel almost bodily, so that we connect so much with his figure as a real-life human being. Such actions draw us in as an audience, and it's almost like we are with the saint here, as if we are one of the onlookers privy to this pain. 
it's arresting and it stays with you. And it's exactly why Giuseppe de Ribera's works work for us. Violence seems to have been a constant theme within many of Giuseppe de Ribera's paintings. From men being martyred, being flayed, many of the individuals in his paintings are enduring some kind of suffering in a very slow and painful way. A lot of onlookers and critics would assume that due to the violent nature of the paintings, Ribera himself must have been a violent man. And do you know what? This may have been the case, but that didn't make him an anomaly either. In fact, it was just the opposite. During the time in which Ribera was in Naples, normal, meaning everyday people, performed, experienced, and witnessed rather violent public acts as a kind of individualized vigilante justice system. For example, Ribera illustrated an Inquisition scene called the Strapado, where a man would be strung up and hung by wrists that were tied behind his back. It was this moment of pain and violence front and center, and that was everywhere in Ribera's world. It would make sense that he would freely represent such grotesque scenes in his own art. And naturally, there was a precedent for this in art history, too. Think of the ancient sculpture that had become so popular in Italy during both the Renaissance and the Baroque periods. Works like the famed Laocoon group, the sculpture showing this Trojan priest and his sons being devoured by two giant sea serpents. Works like this were hugely influential to artists like Ribera, artists who zoomed in on the ancient depiction of horrific suffering and grief. Not that all of Ribera's works were so graphic. That's coming up next right after this break. Don't go away. Most of us are sticking close to home for the time being. So if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, now is the time to do it. I love The Great Courses Plus because it allows me to stay both educated and entertained at the same time, and I think you will love it too. With thousands of lectures from the world's best professors and experts, you can better understand our current situation with reliable, fact-based courses like an introduction to infectious diseases to learn more about viruses, vaccines, and disease transmission. Or you can take a course on fighting misinformation, digital media literacy, which will help you interpret fact from fiction in the news. Or you can use The Great Courses Plus to keep the kids learning about everything from math, science, and history, including art, while they are out of school. And of course, there's no better time to pick up a new hobby, and you can learn about gardening, cooking, yoga, even a new language. So with The Great Courses Plus app, you can watch and listen at any time. That's not only from your computer, but also from a phone, tablet, or internet-connected TV. The Great Courses Plus is giving my listeners this wonderful offer, which is a free trial, and then it's only $10 a month when you sign up for a quarterly plan. Unlimited content for only $10 a month with a quarterly plan. Sign up today using my special URL at thegreatcoursesplus.com art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com art. Staying healthy and strong is more important than ever. And for me, it's all about taking care of myself by going for a walk or a run every day. And then to help me stay further resilient and well, I take supplements from Objective Wellness. 
Objective offers targeted solutions, everything from better sleep to firmer skin or having a healthy immune system. And their products are crafted with the highest quality ingredients to deliver specific results. And behind each ingredient, there are scientific studies and endless hours of research. So for example, they have active extracts from blueberries, saffron, and even microalgae, which provides an excellent antioxidant that is 6,000 times stronger than vitamin C. And Objective knows that wellness looks different on everyone and that there is a no one-size-fits-all solution. That's why Objective focuses on your targeted solutions, giving you exactly what you need and where you need it. I am particularly excited to try their Immune Plus Wellness gummies that include elderberry, propolis, and echinacea. These berries and flowers come together to create these top immune enhancers for daily support that I need to stay healthy for any reason and during any season. Go to objectivewellness.com and use code ARTCURIOUS to get 20% off your first order. If you're not completely satisfied, you can get a full refund, and that is the objective promise. Again, that's objectivewellness.com, code ARTCURIOUS for 20% off. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food or Drug Administration, and all products discussed or advertised are not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Art Curious. Like many other European artists long before and long after, Giuseppe de Ribera painted his share of glowing Madonnas and chubby Jesus babies, all done in a manner that isn't so shocking or grotesquely naturalistic as his martyred saints, for example. But even some of his nonviolent works do have a strange side to them. One of the artist's most famous and most outlandish works of art is a painting known as Magdalena Ventura with her husband and son. In this piece, Ribera included a very intimate moment between a mother and her child, the mother breastfeeding her baby with her bare breast exposed to the public. Now, by no means was this strange. There has been a long precedent prior to the Baroque period where the Madonna Lactans, the image of the Virgin Mary feeding the baby Jesus, was very popular in paintings. So that didn't necessarily throw people off guard, certainly not like it would now with people panicking about breastfeeding in public. But what probably did throw people off was the fact that Magdalena Ventura is sporting a full-grown beard. In fact, Ventura was a Neapolitan celebrity during her lifetime, a wonderful example of gender fluidity at a time when that wasn't necessarily a thing. While her body, especially that exposed pendulous breast, is very feminine, almost nothing about her faces. In fact, she looks more masculine in the traditional sense than even her husband who lingers behind her. And this is what makes Ribera the perfect artist for capturing Magdalena Ventura here. Because he was always attuned to showing someone naturalistically, not afraid to show his subject exactly as they were, withered muscles, lined faces, and yes, fully bearded. And while the woman was probably ridiculed or at least pointed out as different for having had this beard during her lifetime, there is nothing freak show or ostracizing about Ribera's depiction of her. He imbues her with such presence, such power, and she challenges us as viewers to doubt her. She stares directly at us and we are powerless to do anything but to acknowledge and admire her. No doubting of her abilities whatsoever. In 1632, Ribera's aesthetic and technique began to change slightly, shifting from the dark and ominous tones that characterized the works of the first half of his career and moved instead towards becoming both softer in color and more classically inspired in subject matter. His palette became bolder, brighter, 
and his brushstrokes loosened up a bit. Some art historians have noted the influence of artistic styles and techniques from both Venice and also from Northern Europe, especially Flanders, that began to make a huge mark on Giuseppe di Ribera, who adopted these different styles for different means. Now, don't picture some fluffy Impressionist image or a pastel French Rococo concoction that would proliferate a century later. Nothing like that. But check out his later works, like his painting The Holy Family from 1639, and you can see a striking shift. There's more brightness, with splashes of red and blue, making his works more akin to people like Raphael rather than Caravaggio. What's most interesting is that this shows Ribera's flexibility, his adaptability to a patron's wishes or to a particular subject matter, as he would rotate between this brushier, lighter style and his darker, more dramatic style at any given time. Even with all his successes in the Neapolitan community, the last decade and a half of his life were not the most comfortable. Tragedy first hit Ribera in the 1640s when he fell very ill, and the exact nature of his illness is still unknown today. So, due to these mysterious ailments, he was unable to work for long stretches of time, and really, things seemed to decline from there. As if that wasn't bad enough, in 1647 and into 1648, there was a populist uprising in Naples against Spanish rule during which Ribera and other prominent Spaniards were forced to take cover and seek safety in the palace of the Spanish Viceroy. This obviously didn't play into Ribera's favor with the Neapolitan patrons he had previously courted. With the decline in commissions and his health continuing to fail, Ribera found himself in a financial crisis, especially after his eldest daughter lost her husband and she had to move back home. Suddenly, Ribera could no longer support his family. Ultimately, he reached out to the King of Spain asking for financial assistance, hoping against hope that the monarch would be able to come to his aid. Unfortunately, though, such aid didn't arrive in time to actually help. Giuseppe de Ribera died on September 2, 1652, without ever having received a response to his request. It's a terribly sad end to an otherwise illustrious life. At the highest point in his career, Ribera could not have imagined the amount of money and fame that he would acquire due to his artistic talents. But ultimately, he would die a man who had lost most, if not all, of his earnings. After Ribera's death, his works remained in fashion for some time due to that fascinating combination at which he so excelled, this harsh content linked with beautifully rendered figures. He greatly influenced a number of Italian and Spanish painters who followed closely in his footsteps, primary of whom was the painter Luca Giordano, who apprenticed with Ribera on the recommendation of the Spanish Viceroy during the last two years of Ribera's life. But his work also affected artists like Francisco de Zurbaran, Salvatore Rosa, and Francisco de Goya, who took things to even greater darker heights in works like Saturn Devouring His Son, which we discussed back in episode 44. At the beginning of the 20th century, his works had fallen a bit out of favor due to their gruesome naturalism. But a re-examination in the latter part of the century led to a new appreciation of his works and his uncanny ability to create such beautiful nightmares. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Stephanie Pryor and Rachel Whitaker. 
Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daveraineydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our audio production services are provided by Kabunki, superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intention of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, and we rely on donations and, yes, advertising to keep us going. So if you enjoy the show and you have the means, please consider giving $10 to help us. And thank you so much for your kindness. You can help our show as well by leaving a five-star review on wherever you listen. Because believe me, such positivity makes a huge difference, and it helps new listeners to tune in. For more details on our show, including images that we mentioned in the show today, please visit artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.